Thanks for joining us for episode 22 of Practically Ranching. Today we get to talk with Diana Clark. Diana lives in Worcester, Ohio. She and her husband, Dr. Daniel Clark, are the resident meat scientists at the Certified Angus Beef Culinary Center there in Worcester. I just met Diana about three weeks ago while we were at the Certified Angus Beef Annual Conference in the Phoenix area. And I was interested to see that like a lot of meat scientists uh, that I have met and worked with, Diana has this certain dry humor and wit about her that seems to always be in that area of our industry. And, and she just does a great job as she works with uh, CAB customers and the people that uh, represent our product across the world, really, and helping them to learn more about where it comes from and how it's produced. And then, of course, the science behind that meat uh, as, it, as it comes to the consumer. Diana wasn't raised in agriculture, but she does a tremendous job as an advocate for our industry, for the, the products that we raise, and the, for the producers who raise them. And so I think you'll really appreciate and enjoy the insights that we get to hear from Diana on this week's episode. So thanks again for listening to our conversation with Diana Clark. Welcome, Diana, to Practically Ranching. It's great to be here. Excited. Glad to have you. Where are you coming from today? Worcester, Ohio. It is the known center of the universe, as I'm told. That's right. That's right. Especially if you have ever sold, eaten, or been involved with Certified Angus Beef. I'd never heard of the town until uh, until CAB opened its headquarters there. But uh, tell our listeners exactly where Worcester is. It's about an hour south of Cleveland, straight south, and an hour and a half north of Columbus. So we're kind of just right there in the northern center portion of the state. Yeah, Perfect. Not easy to get to, but uh, anybody who's Definitely not. <laughs> been there knew that it was, uh, it was well worth it after they did. Yeah, it's kind of an odd little town, um, but it's, it's a good place to, to live. What's odd about Worcester? It's a... Uh, it's almost like a suburb in terms of the things that it has, the amenities and everything like that. But there's really no major city anywhere close. I think the closest one would be Akron, Canton area, which is still 45 minutes away. So it kind of just popped up out of nowhere. So it just takes a little while to get there. There's not really a direct road running through. It's just always off the beaten path. But that's a, a good thing, I think. And it's right right north of Amish country. So you still have the uh, slow pace of life. That's usually our traffic is if you get stuck behind a, a buggy. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it was a big adjustment, but in a good way. I appreciate it. So tell us about the adjustment process for you, because as a meat scientist, you may have taken just a little different path, at least prior to your education. So um, yeah, from the yeah. get-go, tell us uh, about your history and your life. Yeah, so I um, I actually grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, so I had no background in agriculture or, or meat or anything of the sort. Uh, I went to University of Illinois to be a vet, and so I stumbled into their animal science program. And I was there for, for about a year, and then all of a sudden all, all animal science students got this email that said, Meat Science Lab is looking to hire some employees and I really needed to pay for school so I thought hey I might as well apply and see what happens well apparently they hire everyone that applies because <laughs> it just, I got hired right away um, and then from there it just kind of 
fell into this passion of I just wanted to learn more about what was going on. Uh, Dr. Tom Carr, who was there at the time, he convinced me to join the meat judging team. I told him I had no idea what meat judging was, and he said, that's perfect. That means you don't have any bias. So I joined that team, got to travel around the nation and meet more people within industry and also just see the opportunities within the industry. And that's, I feel like, where my passion just continued to grow. I Having no background in ag, it really became made me more of that advocate um, and I wanted to tell more people about it each and every day especially when I went back home because there's just that huge disconnect um, so I had that ability to, to continue on and get my master's degree at, at University of Illinois in meat science and then I moved out to uh, Worcester uh, my husband he has, has a PhD in meat science so we, we talk a lot about meat in our house a lot about meat uh, but he got a job at Ohio State University and they have a research campus here in Worcester, so that's what brought us to Worcester. And uh, after I had a little bit of time being a quality assurance at a veal packing plant, I switched on over to Certified Angus Beef, and I've been here for close to eight years now, and uh, it's been a blast, honestly. I, I did not know much about the brand prior to starting, except that they gave out really amazing jackets at meat judging contests, and go. I really wanted one of those jackets, so. Uh, that's that was kind of my my hook from there, and just to see the uh, the science and everything that goes into the brand is is phenomenal. And on top of that, too, I have the ability every single day to go out and talk to different restaurant owners, uh, chefs, food distributors, uh, and just preach about agriculture. And so having the the ability to make those connections for people is just it's a lot of fun, to be honest. And your husband's name is? Daniel. And you all work together there in the Culinary Center, correct? Yes, we do, yep. He actually uh, grew up in Oblong, Illinois, which is a very odd name of a town, but it's uh, near Terre Haute, Indiana, Effingham, Illinois, are the biggest biggest towns near it. So he grew up on a small farm. Um, I say small farm, they farm about 1,800 acres, and uh, they had about 40 head of, of Angus cattle um, so definitely two backgrounds mixing together but that's how i feel like worcester's a good good middle ground for both of us and was he at u of i as well with you is he, that where y'all met yes yep that's in, in the, the meat, meat science, science department mm -hmm. cool well dr dr carr the matchmaker huh yeah he is <laughs> <laughs> i my uh, old days at Kansas State, which I would have been there a long time before you would have been judging meats, but um, I always had a lot of respect for Dr. Carl. We would judge against U of I at different contests, and, and uh, I always appreciated the way you, know, you could see some of the coaches that were in it for the win. You could see some of the coaches that were in it for the teaching and yeah. and the friendship and you know just building good young men and women and, and dr carr always seemed to be the latter he was he was a nice guy but still you know wanted him to take something away from it from every contest and i always appreciated that it's very accurate he definitely uh knew how to to shape uh different men, men and women throughout the years he's he's a phenomenal mentor to me so you got into meat science because you needed a job at u of yeah. i why did yeah. you stay i just wanted to know more. There were so many things. So the first day I started, I actually, I started. I think this is a way to try to get me out if I uh, if I wanted to, uh, was on on the harvest floor. So 
they had me show up Tuesday, 7 a.m., and they didn't tell me what I was doing. They just said to come and to bring a change of clothes, and that was about it. <laughs> so I had no idea what I was in for. I got there. They told me where boots were, where a brown apron was, put it on, open up the door, and boom. They were harvesting pigs. So it definitely took me a second to, to take it all in and figure out what was going on. But then there were just so many things of like, well, why is that happening? Like, what's going on there? Why are we doing that? Like, what, what's the point of that? And the questions, I just wanted to know more about it. And so that's really what triggered me to be more involved within meat science. And uh, the community of people that you surround yourself with are also just phenomenal lifelong relationships as well. That definitely a great way to, to pull you in and keep you close. So, uh, I, yeah, I just... I don't know what else there's to say. It just was a, it's a great starting point uh, to branch off and still be involved. I still like the animal aspect of it, um, but then still kind of seeing how you can have different impacts globally just through that the meat industry. Well, that that curiosity and those questions that you had then, and and as you said, your desire to be an advocate for the industry. Um, they they clearly have stuck i mean i i met you a few weeks ago in phoenix area at the uh, cab conference and i have to i have to chuckle my wife and i had not planned on coming to the session that you were leading that day which was for food service wholesalers and and, um, chefs mainly of breaking down the half of a a quarter of a carcass and we thought, well, you know, we've got, there's other places that we could go, other things that we could listen to and see. But um, I think it was Kara Lee said, oh, you've got to go see Diana. She's she's a rock star. And I'm like, a meat science rock star? Really? <laughs> um, and we walked, well, Amy was there from the get-go. I got sidelined in the conversation out in the hallway. And I came in 10 minutes after you'd started. And um, you already had these guys just on the edge of their seats captivated and i'm like how are they this into a cutting demo you know i mean (laughs) and after i'd sat there for five or ten minutes the way you explained it and your humor that you injected into it and the tips that you gave them not just on how to cut meat but how to say okay if the rib has gotten too expensive for your restaurant or your customers and yet you still need steaks. Here's another option that are better value and that you can get in certain times of the year. And I mean, these guys were just hanging on every word. And, and like I said, I, you, you were able to make, and I know that's your, your thing. You are able to make meat science and um, carcass utilization and, and using different cu- cuts and different cooking methods and things like that. Really interesting when sometimes they've kind of just been pretty vanilla, pretty boring in the meat <laughs> science industry. So I appreciate great. that. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun, especially I, so I've had the opportunity to teach just different, different age levels. Um, when I was in college, I taught college students, uh, been able to teach some high school students just throughout, uh, different activities, even teaching elementary kids, um, through ag in the classroom when I was in college, and honestly, when you have people that are in a career listening to you talk about something that's significant to their career, it is the best audience that you could possibly have because they are captivated and they want ideas. And you could see the light bulbs click and they're not afraid to ask questions. 
Um, so it's just it's a lot of fun just to feed off of them, uh, just to get the the questions rolling. You know, once you get one, many many more just come. The kind of the floodgates open. Um, so it's that's been a, it's been a joy to see that throughout the years because um, there's definitely times in in the college classroom when you're teaching and you kind of get frustrated that no one's responding. You try to throw in as much enthusiasm as you can and it still just hangs there a little <laughs> bit. So <laughs> it's it's nice to have the, the captivated audience for sure. I think anybody who has tried to teach college students uh, feels your pain because <laughs> if you don't bring that out, uh, there's probably not a a cooler set of cats that aren't going to show that they're <laughs> actually excited about education or learning than, than a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds. But, uh, when you get them, when you get them involved and get them excited, like, like you can, uh, there's tremendous value. And like you said, yeah. then the, the floodgates just open. I think I walked into that cutting demo just late enough that you had already asked and you were you were firing questions at him and, and wanting information back um, but my wife Amy told me that you had asked what people called a certain cut and I think maybe you were taking a shank or making an osobuco style mm. cut and Amy said the guy behind her answered that it was the shank and somebody else said that it was the osobuco and they got in an argument over this cut of meat that you were, <laughs> <laughs> you were piecing out up there on stage and one guy got up and left because he just couldn't stand to sit next to somebody that was going to call that a shank when he knew exactly what it was supposed to be called and, and that's the wild part about meat sales and, and you know both on the retail and the and the restaurant or food service side we've got so many different names for cuts and yeah we've got the spec guides and yes we've got usda and and ag marketing service who have specified this is and namp and everybody else that have said this is what they're supposed to be called but then when you get to the retailer and see a charcoal steak listed and you're yeah. going what in the world a charcoal steak and <laughs> find out that if you put that thing anywhere near charcoal you're probably never going to buy beef <laughs> <laughs> so it you know it's 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 not an easy deal once that beef gets put out there in front of consumers and they get maybe slightly misguided or misled so how do you best help your and our customers that are presenting those cuts and those plates to the end consumer how do you best help them make sure that we don't over promise and under deliver i honestly think the easiest way is to kind of provide a <clears throat> excuse me a cooking method during it um kind of explain like oh this is great for braising and everyone just gets so focused on the name of the cut. Uh, it it actually it drives me nuts, especially when it comes to food service. You have these <clears throat> chefs who are incredible. I mean, really are just incredible individuals when it comes to just being innovative and creative. And they get to a, a top sirloin steak. And they say, well, I don't want to call it a top sirloin on my menu. Like, okay. So... And then they they look for me for an answer. I've I know it as a top sirloin. That's all I got. Like you call it whatever you Let's want. Call but it a Diana steak. Yeah, right. Let's promote that a little bit. But it's explain it. Like explain what they're about to eat. Put some details behind it, so that way they can get the picture before they they purchase the steak. Um, the hardest part is I know at at retail you have so many different of those. 
this is where I wish retail would go to more standardized naming because you sure. they do try to do some of the the local or regional names or you can only get this cut here but then that consumer will go and buy that package and they go and bring it home and they try to Google how to cook it and nothing's coming up so it's that confusion behind there of Okay, what cut is what? Because a lot of times it's the, like the the name London Broil. Oh yeah, that was what I just was writing it down. Mm. Yes, that one. Oh, that that encompasses many, 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 many steaks, um, and it or really not is more. Steaks. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's it's the cooking technique that it needs to be in, involved in, and it's. I think that's just kind of like, well, we don't know what to call it. Let's throw it under a London Broil and. So there's there's definitely confusion behind there, and we have worked at Certified Angus Beef, and we're still trying to get better at this, of putting in a name. So if you would come to our website and try to look up a cut, and let's say someone calls it uh, a sirloin strip steak, and so you type that in, and then hopefully it would generate the correct cut that you're looking at, um, so you can pull that forward. Where we're trying to get a huge database of all these different names. Um, now that is hard, especially when you come up with London Broil, because there's many people <laughs> call different cuts different names. Um, so, yeah, that that is something that's that's a challenge. I've always pushed to do uh, to for everyone to know the Latin terms. If you just know the Latin terms of the muscles, I think that's going to make things so much easier in life. Uh, but that's really hasn't picked up from anyone yet. So I'll just keep preaching that until uh, till it works. But um, I I think really that's where understanding where the cuts come from and when you start to look at a cut and kind of looking at the muscle fibers of it, that makes it way more beneficial for you as a cook uh, to to know what needs to be done in order to cook it properly. Because the cuts that are found in, in the chuck and the round, those are really heavy used cuts. And so a lot of times they're going to need some extra love and care in order to make them be those tender, flavorful pieces that you want. Um, so kind of going low and slow on those is, is key. And if you recognize, oh, this is a round cut, then you kind of know what to do with it. Um, and it takes me back to 4-H meat judging. I coached a team and just trying to recognize, ID those different cuts based on the muscles itself. So if you could start to do that a little bit, um, I'd say that's your best bet in order to to give yourself the best eating experience. Um, But we do try to go back and forth with many different people coming in of of what cut comes from where and what they're calling it here. And it gets even more confusing uh, when we have our uh, global audience. So we do this, uh, this... event every year it's called international roundup where we have a a heavy amount of of latin american customers that come in and we'll actually take the cuts and we put them out on tables and i will have every all the attendees write down what they call that cut underneath it so a, a culotte for example will have five or six different names depending on what country you're coming from and you think about that customer they're purchasing not only from the United States, hopefully they realize the United States is the best place to purchase, but from all other places. So they have to kind of know these cut names depending on who they're purchasing from. Um, and just the confusion behind that is is extreme. Uh, but it's really neat to see it laid out on that table 
for me to grasp, okay, this is what you guys are going through on a daily basis, um, helps me then from a teaching standpoint of kind of slowing down and walking through the cut attributes more than the cut name itself. So when you're working with these folks, are you primarily working with uh, the wholesalers and the retailers who are then selling these cuts to consumers? Do you ever have a consumer-focused educational effort? Yeah, we we mostly are the wholesalers and, and people who are working with consumers. Um, we do have a few times where we have some, some consumer groups come in. For example, we had a, a local... A retailer called Acme where they actually did a, a thing throughout the summer where you could win points and whoever whatever customer had the most points at the end I think they took like their top five they actually got to come to the culinary center and go through a day of learning about beef getting kind of royalty treatment by our chefs cooking for them um, so we did that consumer one-on-one and we are trying as a brand to be more consumer facing and i'd say that's mainly through social media avenues than anything but just trying to break things down a bit more because there is that consumer that just wants to dive a little bit deeper and hopefully they would find us as a beef resource to provide that to them so we've made it more of our our goal within the next few years to focus on that consumer outreach uh, and are really, like I said before, that social media platform is the, the biggest net that we can cast. Now, time and time again, I do catch myself standing in front of the meat case just trying to talk to people a little bit more, which probably makes me seem a little crazy at, at the retail counter. But I, sometimes I just, I just want to educate. It's like if you just knew just a tid, tidbit more information, you could go far. So um, it is it is fun just to get people's unbiased opinion on things while you're standing there yeah Um, yeah i'm glad you're doing it and the reason i ask that as you talked about being an advocate for the industry uh, you're a meat scientist and so you naturally want people as they decide how they're going to cook this steak or what they're going to do to this roast or whatever else to understand why they need to do that um yeah how do you walk that line between folks who may still be a beef lover and yet don't want to make that connection to a live animal that was out there standing in a pasture somewhere do you ever run into that and and maybe you saw that as you made your move from suburban chicago and into harvesting hogs that first day on the job at u of i yeah no that is uh i mean i i've definitely experienced that for sure and it's a hard line to walk through and i i think it's it's understanding the role of agriculture and putting the importance of, I mean, in the United States, we're feeding the world. We're not, we're not just feeding us. And so it's really understanding how important of a role we have here in order to get that high protein source out uh, to everyone. And it, it's from a nutrition standpoint, it is, it is the best protein source that you can get to. Uh, so I, I highly push that line. Um, however, I honestly think the easiest way to to break it down for them is to bring them to a facility, which is not always easy thing to do. But my my mom specifically. So when I graduated from from college with my master's degree, she had yet to step foot in the meat science lab. And I, I told her she came down for my thesis presentation and everything. And I said, 
you you need to see it like you you need to be here you need to understand what's going on otherwise i feel like i failed you <laughs> and so <laughs> she she did she actually came on a tuesday morning harvest day and and watched it all and her first reaction to it was oh my goodness it's so clean hmm. and i was i was taken aback i'm like well yeah because it's food production i but i think still to that that consumer that's not what they're taking it as but that that's really what it comes down to is it's it's that food production and understanding that the animal is treated to the best of its ability its entire life i mean really people don't go into to raising beef animals if they don't like them uh, and i've i've said that time and time again to to consumers in the meat lab I mean, they're, they're not really going to waste their time with them if, if they don't care for that animal. That's what got them into it is their their passion for animal husbandry. And from there, you know that that animal is going to be treated appropriately. Uh, so that's usually the line that I like to to walk with consumers here at the meat lab. And But really giving them that experience is, I think, is the greatest takeaway. And currently, right now, we have a group in the culinary center it's called our MBA program, where we just make them masters of beef. So we, we really want them to be able to be those advocates within the industry. So we have one week where they go and tour um, different sectors of the beef industry, looking at a commercial ranch, a seed stock ranch, a feed yard, and then actually going to a packing plant. And then another week of the year, they come to the culinary center and they get to break down a side of beef and see where all those different cuts come from. And then the final week, which they're here right now, they focus a little bit more on sales, but then understanding dry aged beef, aging, ground beef, uh, to give them that whole picture. And they are blown away uh, by just the education that they receive. I think it's more of, they get so many what if questions answered, or those things that you always wonder, what's actually happening? And they realize how transparent the industry truly is. Um, and that first week for many is is their main takeaway of, wow, uh, just seeing, I mean, people like your family just raising those animals and, and doing an amazing job at it and continuing to to advocate and, and, and preach and teach uh, is, is a phenomenal way to, to really change that consumer's mindset. Yeah, and when those folks can tell our story for us, and it's accurate, and you know they they have firsthand experience, the people they're talking to, their consumers, their customers, they see it and they get it. Yes, and and that was one of the things that I took away more than anything else when we when Amy and I and Mom and Dad were there at the CAB conference. You know, here we were. Of, the small minority of people at that conference as a producer because there really weren't that many of us and then here are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of food service and retail folks that are more fired up about selling high quality beef maybe than even I am and I didn't know there was anybody <laughs> that was that passionate about telling our story for us and um, it's just it was incredible to to get that opportunity and to see that yeah, these people are, are out there every day fighting in the trenches, yes, to sell beef, yes, to win over the hearts and minds and dollars of consumers, but to tell 
the story behind the steak. And yes. and when we have people besides just farmers and ranchers doing that, uh, man, it's it's just incredible. It really is. It truly is, especially when they're they're passionate about it too. It it, it comes through so so easily, and I think that makes that message much easier to to consume from that consumer standpoint. So you've mentioned the CAB Culinary Center a couple of times. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so the Culinary Center has been around a little over 10 years now. So it's it's at Worcester, Ohio. It's just a, it's another building. Um, we have basically a, a front-of-the-house kitchen, and I say that where you can see chefs and stuff interacting. You can see their, their grilling um, ovens, everything like that. Then we kind of have the the back of the house just meal prepping and everything like that and we also have a a meat lab on the back and then we have your traditional classroom style powerpoint screens um, that we could do some education and we also have this beautiful dining room that uh, added on to the side as well so the main goal as a someone coming in so we'll usually host chefs we'll host uh, food distributors we'll host retailers um, just ever, and we even host packing plant partners as well too. Just coming in to get a little bit more education on on beef, and so typically they'll come in and get that farm to fork experience. We'll bring them out to Adderhalt Farms, which is just right in Ashland, Ohio, or Chippewa Valley Angus, which is still in Worcester, um, to give them that farming experience. Show them a little bit about beef production. We'll bring them back to the culinary center, introduce them to the brand, just let them know where our roots are, how we're tied to that American Angus Association, really focus on our our mission statement. And then from there, we'll bring them into the meat lab and we'll break down sides of beef, kind of talk about the different cuts, talk about ways you can better utilize the carcass, where they can get more value from those cuts. And then we have seven chefs on staff, which will take those cuts and cook them in incredible ways honestly once you eat beef here you realize you have not consumed great beef until you've uh, had it cooked by our chefs Uh, but they will go ahead and they'll either put a a menu together that really focuses on cuts that we're trying to get in front of that customer whoever is in uh, to give them ideas as they move forward and that way they can get, like I said before, that farm to fork experience. They really get to, to taste every every piece of the industry. Um, and it's, it, it is just fun to see those, those light bulbs pop on as, as they're there. So uh, we're extremely busy throughout the year. We usually have at least two to three groups in a week. And it does vary on who's coming in. Like last week we had uh, a group of chefs come in that were all from throughout the United States and Canada. Uh, then we had a retailer come in, and then we actually had the regional Angus Auxiliary Group come in at the end of the week. So we have producer groups that are, are thrown in there as well. Uh, so it's fun to get that the variety coming and just making sure that we're targeting our message correctly or giving the, the appropriate education to whoever's in audience. So you have seven full-time chefs. Or full-time chefs, yep. Three or four meat scientists. So Clint Wallencheck and John Sticka and David O'Dime, uh, Carson Rogers, they all have meat science uh, backgrounds. But So we pull pull them in. John, we try to lead, get him to lead fabrication every now and again. There you but, go. Uh, That's good. He's, he's uh, a lot of times he'll say he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to. He's not qualified, although he has a Ph.D. in meat science. So he's <laughs> highly qualified. Um, 
but uh, we'll we'll pull people in just depending on how fast we're moving. To be honest, because we'll, a lot of times if Daniel's traveling, and then if I if we have a, a little one get sick or something like that, we'll have to pull someone else in to to cover. But there's a few of us meat scientists around that will will kind of help help run the show for sure. And just for our folks that may not be as familiar with certifying as beef and maybe even the American Angus Association. Um, I, we won't give them the full uh, story back to 1978, but <laughs> basically that culinary center was purchased and built and years ago, and that was a, a partnership, obviously, but the certifying as beef program is able to fund that through and, and fund everything they do through those dollars that they receive on pounds of beef that are sold from the packing plant as certified Angus beef out to the retail and food service segments. I'm close to the close to accurate on that, am I not? You are you are hundred percent accurate on that, yeah. So every penny that we make on the pound goes back into marketing certified Angus beef to help drive the demand for registered Angus cattle. That's that's our, our mission. So hopefully by Super having that high quality beef, that demand just continues to to grow and grow, and we continue to see that every year, which is phenomenal. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about some of those numbers on a on a later podcast probably, but it is it is impressive for me to see. And Dr. Larry Cora mentioned this a month or so ago on a podcast. It's impressive to see as a lifelong agriculture beef producer that has had driven into his mind the supply and demand fundamentals and as you increase supply of a given commodity and demand stays close to constant the price is obviously going to go down and yet here we are the last three four five years that we've moved more and more and more CEB prime and certified angus beef through the channels at a higher price and so uh, that's that's pretty cool to see and i think it speaks to what it is you all are doing there on cb programs through the culinary center and with your with your partners as well so i want to go back you mentioned london broil and for our folks here in the high plains if they're like me growing up they've never even seen that on a cut of meat and i my first job out of college at kansas state uh went to Pennsylvania Beef Council and was working as their director of promotions for the retail and food service uh, end of things. And so I got to work with some of the same folks that you work with now, only 20 years prior. Um, (laughs) The first thing I had to do was work with Acme Markets. I don't know if it was the same Acme or not, but I assume... It definitely, I'm assuming it was, because it's the same footprint. Yeah. Yeah, they've expanded a little bit further west, but they were having a big retail... Uh, promotion that week on London broils. Well, I had to go to my meat science books and try to figure out what a London broil was, and it was nowhere. <laughs> so finally, I just asked somebody, "What, in, what in the world is a London broil?" <laughs> they said, "It depends on what's cheap." Yeah, <laughs> so they, it's a great answer. They they'd cut a two three inch slab of meat that was about eight to twelve inches long and throw it on a styrofoam plate and call it a call it a London broil. Yep. So what all cuts are that they using for that? I'd say way back when the original London broil was the flank steak. Which oh is, really? Uh, yes. And I never flank, saw that. Yeah. And, and that I mean that was a way way back when and this is this is all hearsay for me uh, but it was a cheap cut of meat it was uh, usually it's it's a little bit leaner 
Um, and so they would utilize that. And again, that's why they comment about any, whatever's cheap. So that was the traditional London broil. But now, since flank steak got so popular, mainly from food work and cooking shows, that's really not used anymore. I would say any London broil that you'd see probably would come from the top round and bottom round primarily. You also will see some from the clodhart. Um, the clodhart is also sometimes called the English roast, but usually those are the ones that you're you're going to find. And it's typically like one whole muscle. You're not going to have a bunch of different muscles in there. And it is cut about two inches thick. And yep, it's just that big piece of lean that you see in that styrofoam tray is what's going to fall into that London broil category. Yeah, I think usually it looked to me like it was the bottom round. Um, and quite often they would slap a sticker on there of how to season it to grill it. And I was just like, oh my Ooh, gosh, gosh this, yeah, don't grill it. this is a disaster <laughs> waiting to happen. No, of yeah. course that was 1996 and um, we were at the absolute low of, of beef demand and you can point to any chart you want. Things like that weren't helping us any. So I think it, a lot of the work not. you all have done and the beef checkoff and others to try to educate people on how to cut those things and how to how to cook those cuts um, has done a lot of a lot of good. So the next uh, nomenclature deal that's that's a pretty obvious debate, which is a strip loin steak supposed to be called New York or Kansas City? Oh goodness, <laughs> I so I call it a New York strip. But uh, I, I, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, from the most part, I always see people call a Kansas City strip if it's bone-in, a New York strip if it's boneless, and and that's about it. But, I mean, if you want to get technical, it should be a top-loin steak and you call it good. But yep. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, that one we get a lot. Uh, we definitely go, and you'll have people go back and forth on it in, in a room, which is kind of funny. Like we just just know that it's a strip steak and forget about the other part and you'll you'll be fine. Well, I, our eldest daughter Ava is on the junior meats judging team at Kansas State uh, and did a bunch of retail meat ID and things like that growing up in 4-H. And our son Lyle is actually, as we speak, judging at the American Royal Meats contest today. Oh, nice. And so uh, he's. They're going to love this one, and actually our middle daughter, Hannah, is also doing a lot of 4-H meets judging, so uh, this will be one of their favorites, but yeah, when we start talking retail cut ID, uh, they'll be all over it, because they actually know more about it than I did. I didn't do any of the 4-H stuff growing up, and of course we didn't do retail cut ID in, in collegiate meets judging, so they, they, they've won up their dad for sure on, on that. That is one of my funnest things to uh, to teach when it comes to 4-H meat judging. You you come up with different ways to remember things, and yeah, the primal cut name, moist dry cooking, all of that. It's yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that's that's good information that they can use forever, and and hopefully be an advocate uh, as we touch base with the consumers going forth as well. So what would you say the biggest difference in the meat, in the beef that you're cutting today at the Culinary Center compared to the beef that you were learning to cut on at, in the early days at, at U of I? Well, honestly, the meat that we get in here is consistently extremely high quality. Um, and that's um, partially, we only get certified as beef in, but also the the packing plant that we work with, Bob Boliance, Boliance Packing in Ashland, Ohio. He is a, a great gentleman that is 
has a really good way to work with producers to make sure they're selecting for the right genetics and providing the right nutrition for the animals. So a lot of times we only get certified Angus beef prime carcasses in. Uh, we this this past week we've actually just broke down the Wayne County Reserve champion steer and oh my goodness is it beautiful um talk about a top round with loads of marbling it it yes so that steer was fed very well uh, (laughs) and did did a great job but uh now in illinois i will say we did have pretty good quality beef coming through um majority of them just based on what we had there were, were angus cattle uh so usually usually they'd grade usda choice or above and so we had had a good amount but we primarily honestly did hogs more than anything sure uh, that was kind of our that's that was our our belt there so i learned a lot on on hogs and pork uh, from a cutting standpoint and then it's neat how it all translates in together i mean God made one great design to start with, so he didn't really need to, to make all the animals completely different. So it was, it's kind of cool to go from, from one animal to the next. If you know how to cut one apart, it's pretty easy to get the other ones too. Uh, but beef is fun because the muscles are so big. So you really get to, to break down and get to those individual muscles versus a lot of your, your other animals. You have to kind of hunk and chunk uh, and just continue moving that way because a flank steak off of a, a, a lamb carcass is pretty tiny, so yeah. it's not going to feed too many people. <laughs> so one thing you mentioned during that demo at, at uh, CB conference was about an additional rib that you're sometimes seeing on some of these loins. Tell me about yep. that and how often you see that and, and the cause behind that, in your opinion. Yeah, so, um, some, so usually all cattle have uh, 13 ribs. Right. Um, and here recently, uh, I'd say since I've been at Certified Angus Beef, we'd get every now and again a, an extra rib thrown in there. Uh, and so a lot of times uh, when you see it in industry, they call it a floater rib where this rib will kind of, it will be there, but it won't be attached to the backbone. They won't actually have that, that extra vertebrae put in there. We've seen cattle now that have that full extra rib in there. And at first you think, did they just misrib the animal? But then you, you start counting the, the vertebrae and the ribs, and you say, nope, that's right. Um, so what I think it's attributed to is, we, of course, we love our middle meats. So you love the rib, you love the strip, and so you're selecting for those cattle that are longer. Um, and just over that natural selection of continuing to breed longer cattle to each other, I mean, ultimately that animal puts in another rib to help support its back a little bit more. and. Uh, so you see that pushing through, which is great because that means we get more ribeye steaks and more strip loin steaks. And I think that's what everyone's kind of hoping for and even more tenderloin steaks as well. Um, so it's neat to see. And you've seen that in other um, species. I mean, you think about hogs, there's actually uh, the landrace pig. They they were bred to be longer animals and they have lots of ribs. And so that, that way they have those longer loins. But their gestation and everything is much faster than than beef cattle so you don't see that the effects of it happening as fast but considering we're getting a a smaller population through uh, bully ants works with specific ranchers most of the time so we're going to see that probably more than what you would see in typical industry Uh, but it is kind of neat to notice those those changes yeah 
I heard you say that in that session, and then we were ultrasounding our bulls and heifers, yearling bulls and heifers, last week, and I asked our ultrasound tech if he had noticed that, and he said, oh yeah, he said, I, I don't know how many it is, maybe one in 200, and then he got to talking through it, and we established that it was probably a few more, and it's tough for them because, you know, they're they're starting at the back, palpating up to get that 12th yeah. or 13th rib juncture, which is where the ultrasound, just like a USDA grader or a camera would, would rib and, and read that ribeye and, and marbling, they do the same thing with an ultrasound machine. And he said, when there's a 14th full rib in there, you have to catch yourself and figure out, okay, is that a floater or where am I at? And, and uh, he had seen it too. Um, I was just wondering how often you were seeing it and, and if it was with some of the bigger ribeye, bigger carcasses, or if you could tell if that was a function of these heavier carcass weights that we were actually not just making the, the cattle bigger muscle, deeper, maybe taller but also adding a rib to the length of that carcass yeah i definitely i definitely think it's length related i mean we still because certifying as beef has the ribeye area specification of 10 to 16 square inches um so it's not even just from a an overall mass size of that ribeye it's it's literally that animal's just just longer um to the point and like you said just with that ultrasound technician typically at a packing plant when they rib the animal between the 12th and 13th rib, they actually will count the vertebrae. So they start from the, the tail going down and they'll count down seven and a half and rib it. Well, if they have an extra vertebrae in it, that's actually gonna adjust where it's at. So it does kind of throw it off a little bit. And it, uh, it would be neat to talk to some of our packing partners to see how often they see it as well, uh, just to know throughout industry. We, I mean, we'll see it here even maybe close to 10 times a year or so, maybe a little bit more than that. But again, we're, we're getting from a smaller population. Uh, but I could see it. That's kind of neat to know that the ultrasound technician is seeing it more as well. So, yeah. So are you saying that there's still the same number of total vertebrae in the they would carcass, or do they have one extra vertebrae, and that's where the extra rib is? If it's connected, if that rib is connected, it has an extra... It has an extra vertebrae in there. Yeah, that's it what does. I figured it had, had to be because I wouldn't think that you could make that uh, that mutation. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's crazy. When it you is. Think, you have to rewrite the Bible that. and everything. Gosh, <laughs> that's like, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? All these different things. but And that's that's the fun part to me, even with the meat science community. I mean, there is... There's research that will go into stuff like that, like muscle development, go all the way to your your Hox genes with cells splitting. And I mean, your your muscle, you are born with the number of muscle cells that you will always have. You cannot produce more muscle cells. It's the size of them can increase and they grow over time, but the number of muscle cells that you're born with, that's what you have. So it's how how are we adjusting things during gestation to cause for more growth um, in order to produce cattle more efficiently and effectively. And it's it's phenomenal to, to see and try to understand all that and just amazing to see the complexities behind it. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's a uh, it's a whole industry effort. Like you said, I mean, the discussion of what we do in utero or during gestation to affect that animal's ability to grade CAB or to be bigger or to be smaller or whatever the case may be we weren't even talking about that when I was in school I mean it was all 
how are you feeding that calf from the time he's weaned? And then all of a sudden the research was saying, well, it actually, you can feed him when he's a couple months old and affect that. And now all of a sudden, well, you can actually feed that cow while she, exactly. she's bred. <laughs> so it, it's can, so crazy. Yep. Yep. And, and, and we can affect that, um, good or bad we can even have some unintended consequences on other traits as well that uh, that are always interesting to, to weigh into the scenario as well yeah that was actually my um my thesis for my master's degree looked at uh and it was kind of timely later in life but looked at in, uh, if infecting sows with uh pers virus which is just their respiratory virus at a civic point during gestation to see how that impacted overall muscle development um, so now flash forward to 2020 and we have this respiratory virus coming through and I actually was pregnant last year. My, my mind was racing of uh, going back to my thesis of like, okay, so what's going on with this right now? But uh, it, it's just kind of, it's cool to see uh, that, that take place. Well, when you can connect that again, that, that uh, even improves your ability to tell that story from the and lag side to humans and consumers even better. So what did you find on your uh, on your thesis work on PERS and SALS? When when could you or when did it affect things? So if it's in that kind of that last trimester that the sow does get and it's it's kind of right before the start of that last trimester um, it will impact muscle the muscle cell size we we did see that and even cell number so you know, they'll have fewer uh, muscle cells and so now the my study we didn't take it out all the way to market weight but assuming that if they have fewer cell number they're going to have lighter muscle carcasses later and that so kind of proof goes to show the importance of of herd health uh, just making sure that those animals are, are taking care of that throughout because it will just continue to impact uh, the offspring too which is it was definitely a, a neat to see and yeah I really enjoyed doing that it was a lot of fun uh, just thinking back to it now so take yourself back to pre U of I days and uh, think how in the world did I get here I mean <laughs> I, you've told us how but connecting those dots uh, <laughs> It's not a very straight line, is it? Actually, it sounds like it has been a pretty straight line. It just started at a different point than most of us did. Yes, it, it's kind of, I never, ever, ever would have expected to be, to land here um, growing up, ever. Um, I honestly, that's my, my biggest regret is that I, I, growing up, I never had that ag exposure to be involved in 4-H or FFA or anything like that. Um, I do think that those programs set kids apart completely uh, just showing them just true values of things and understanding honestly getting them just prepared for life um, I think that there's just so so much uh, efforts that can be put there uh, so I do wish that I was a part of that from a younger age but uh, yeah I I have no idea I God definitely led me down this path and I'm happy that he did uh, but it's it's been a fun ride for, for sure for sure it's fun to to see family uh understand it i'd say a few of my uncles who are hunters definitely appreciate the fact that i've fallen into this this <laughs> avenue get asked many questions and help with things so it's that's that's been fun to see uh but yeah for the for the most part is uh 
I, I will say this this was kind of an odd. Um, so Dr. Tom Carr, he retired uh, when I was still still at University of Illinois, and they had this big retirement banquet for him, and a lot of previous meat judges came in to to go to this banquet. It was really well attended, and so we were his last team. So we actually got up and were introducing ourselves. Well, um, someone that was in the crowd actually was living in my hometown and he had two daughters they were twins Sophie and Rachel that were uh, the exact same age as me and went to high school with me um, had no idea that he had that connection back to to the meat industry and meat science and everything like that and so it's kind of fun to see that there is that that slight connection uh, even though everyone was so far removed from from ag, so it was, yeah, was kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's really great. So when you were growing up, what did you think you wanted to be before you decided it was a meat scientist? Primarily, it was a vet. I'd say from. I guess uh, that's right. Yeah. I'd say in in high school, that's really when that was decided after biology class. That was uh, my my goal, and really, the, I think that the biggest thing that deterred me from being a vet after I got to school was understanding how much schooling I would go through but then ultimately if someone wasn't willing to pay for the animal to be fixed I, I that was kind of the end hmm. and so to me it was like well I would I would know how to fix them but then I just wouldn't do anything about it it just really bothered me it's like if I knew how to fix them why wouldn't I just fix them but I mean financially it wouldn't make any sense so I'd probably end up as a bankrupt that at some point <laughs> if I continued down that path uh, so I that's what kind of made me start asking more questions and I really they, I love University of Illinois I mean when I was there it was animal science 100 I still remember I was sitting there talking to a professor after class and I ended up staying an hour after class had finished, just asking questions. And that's when I, that, that I was definitely that student. Um, uh, but <laughs> it's good. He he asked me he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to be a vet. And then he he said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> well, no one had ever no one had ever followed up with that question. I'm, uh, I don't. Well, maybe I'm not sure. I don't know. And he encouraged me to start visiting different with different professors in different labs at U of I to, to understand what other opportunities there were besides being a veterinarian. Um, and that really got me questioning of what was going on and what else, what other opportunities I had as an animal scientist. Um, and so I'm extremely thankful that he did that and it's definitely opened up different avenues for sure. Well, that's, that's an awesome story because um in my opinion, the world needs more curiosity and the world needs more scientists and the world needs more scientists who are curious and, mm. and will ask those questions and are excited about not just what we think we already know, but what we can find out and what we can learn. And um, as we see new things like a 14th rib or <laughs> whatever the case may be, um, and and we're just pretty fortunate to have folks like yourself within the within the beef community and and there at certifying beef making sure to not only not only learn and and explore science and improve upon what we already know but advocate for us as beef producers and and uh, for the beef industry so we uh, we 
can't tell you thank you enough, Diana, and I appreciate uh, all that you do there. No, thank you. I, it's it's a lot of fun. I do lo- love it. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I have kept you long enough, and I appreciate your time. And uh, tell Daniel and the whole crew there at CAB thank you as well, and keep up the good work. Oh, well, for sure. It's been great talking to you. Looking forward to this. You bet. You bet. Well, thanks a bunch, Diana. It's time to invest in practical, profitable genetics from Dale Banks Angus. We'll sell 145 yearling and coming two-year-old bulls on Saturday, November 19th. They're the top end of our 2021 calf crops, bred for over a century to offer a balance of calving ease, docility, maternal excellence, carcass merit, and sound feet and legs. They're ranch-raised, freeze-branded, fertility-checked, and ready to work either this fall or next spring. Catalogs will be available in late October. Contact us today to get on the list. Videos of all bulls will be available prior to the sale. Come see us November 19th northwest of Eureka, Kansas, or bid online at cci.live. Call or text Matt Perrier at 620-583-4305 or go to dalebanks.com.